Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival Advent Edition. We are in week three this week, and we are looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here, in the third week of Advent, we return to the wilderness with John the Baptist, this time in the Gospel of Luke. Although the passage from Isaiah is mentioned just before our text begins, Luke's account varies quite a lot from Mark's that we covered last week. One of the differences is found in the person of the prophet himself. Here in Luke, our current passage offers no colorful descriptions of John's wild clothes and paleo diet. It only offers claims that John was in the wilderness preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps Luke is more concerned with what John says and where he says it. This is evident uh, not only in his lack of physical descriptions of the prophet, but in the relatively long account of what John actually says to the people. In fact, Luke provides the most detailed account of John's preaching than any other of the gospel writers. He puts more words in John's mouth than Matthew or Mark or John. So what does 
Luke tell us John says. John opens his ironic good news sermon with ferocity and threats. The good news. You brood of vipers. That's the good news. <laughs> it is ironic. And who is he calling a brood of vipers? People in power? The religious establishment? Roman governors? No. He speaks these harsh words to who? The crowds that had come to be baptized by him. These are his people. Just regular people. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, nowhere else in Scripture do I know of a place where the crowds, the ordinary people, are called vipers. But John's a little testy. He's a little hot and bothered. And what got him so hot and bothered? What is it? Well, apparently many of these ordinary folks seem to think that their identity as children of Abraham was sufficient to free them of the need for baptism. They figured by their very identities, the, very, the religious claims that they make, their claims about their identity based on religion was good enough. But John sets them straight, telling them that their perceived specialness is worthless in the face of their sin that they needed to be baptized for. God can raise children of Abraham up from these stones, he says. And he's, by saying this, he kind of sets them up for what comes next. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In fact, up there at the top, he talks about bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Bearing fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Apparently, baptism is a beginning, you know, and not an end. It should lead to something. Apparently, John is concerned with more than simple spiritual cleansing, as important as that is, and as necessary as that is. It's a prerequisite. Spiritual cleansing is a prerequisite. But his good news, John's good news, is not to be confined, not to remain out there in the wilderness or locked up, closed up in private personal souls. It is social. It has to bear fruit in the world. The people, apparently a little flummoxed here at John's dark warnings about bearing fruit, ask him, what should we do? Not what should we believe, but what should we do? And John gives them pragmatic, concrete instructions. He gives them action items. He tells them, take what you do not need and give it to the poor. Take what you do not need, your clothes, your food, whatever, and give it to the poor, and with zero qualifiers. Just do it. That's the first time they ask, what should we do? This is one of those places in the Bible where uh, the same thing happens three times. And you know what that means. That means it's just a way of saying, this is important. There are some tax collectors out there. Even the tax collectors were attracted to John. 
And they asked the same question. Teacher, what should we do? To this, John replies, collect what people owe you and no more. Reject corruption. Do not abuse the system and do not abuse other people for your own gain. Do not abuse people in the system. Do not take advantage of the system of your position to gain at others' expense. So we had the people, we had the tax collectors, we also have Roman soldiers, also not very popular among the people, almost as unpopular as the tax collectors. Roman soldiers had come to the wilderness as well, and they asked a third time, and we, what should we do? That's three times now. John tells them to not extort money from people. Don't use violence and threats of violence to extort money from people. Be satisfied with what you have. Do not abuse your power. How is it worded exactly? Let's go up and look. Do not use threats or false accusations to extort money from people. In other words, just do your job and be satisfied with what you make, with the money that you make. Do not abuse your power for your own gain. So John wants to see what? A faithful distribution of possessions, the rejection of corruption, and he wants a legal and official government system that refuses to resort to violence and threats of violence for its own survival. This is John's answer to what should we do to prepare for the one that's coming. Reject corruption. Distribute your goods faithfully. And reject a legal system that refuses, reject a legal system that depends on violence and threats of violence. Each of these represents a moral choice made by individuals, but each one is also concerned with justice and the overall ordering of society. It keeps its eye on those who are abused by the system. The good news is for those to whom he is speaking directly, but it is also good news for those who are not present, those poor that are not present, ordinary people who are not present, those who are subject to the whims of a violent state. The good news is for those who have no coat, those who have been cheated out of their hard-earned wages, the good news is those who have been threatened and beaten by soldiers, by agents of the empire. John therefore offers good news for individuals and for society as a whole. The fruit is revealed not only in personal righteousness before God, but also in corporate righteousness and in justice. Justice, said Professor Cornell West, justice is what love looks like in public. John's words resonate with those of the prophets before him and with the words of Jesus after him. John's message therefore carries a deeply political point and by political, I don't necessarily mean, you know, red and blue. What I mean is that it carries consequences, dire consequences for the powers that be. And in that, John is no different than Jesus. In fact, before Jesus was even born, Jesus was threatening the powers that be. 
the Magi, when they came to King Herod, what did they say to him? Where is born the king of the Jews? That's what they said. And you know what that led to. State gets threatened, empire gets threatened, state clamps down, empire clamps down. Jesus' message and John's message today has political consequences. This may be why Luke, who's a master, don't give me, you got to know, Luke is a master storyteller. He's a literary craftsman, and he's also a stickler for history of all the gospel writers. He's the one who's most concerned to frame the story within the, the larger political context. And so he bookends our text today with two accounts of secular authority. You don't get it in the lectionary reading, but if you look just before it and just after it, it's full of secular authority and government power. A lengthy list of imperial and religious rulers comes just before Luke 3. And the lead-up of Luke 3 is also, I mean, the beginning of Luke 3 is also about sort of a list of leaders. It frames it historically. And John's sermon, right after, uh, the next verse after this passage has to do with John being killed. By who? By the state who he threatens. His words have political consequences. But consistent with Luke's historical reframing, the halls of power in Luke are not where the real action takes place. It's always set in a political context, and there's always political consequences. But the halls of power, those in power, are not where all the real action takes place. In Luke, all spiritually significant events occur in stables or in dusty, out-of-the-way towns or today, like out in the wilderness. Large-scale political change begins far from the halls of power. This one man, John, in the wilderness, pointing to the one to come, the one who will baptize us with unquenchable fire, foretells a revolution that will bring down the powers and principalities of the world. And it starts how with us today, the baptized, waiting, anticipating, reflecting. But not just that, not just waiting and anticipating and reflecting, not just becoming sort of in some sense spiritually prepared. It also starts with us, this revolution, taking what we do not need and giving it to the poor. Refusing to gain unfairly from the systems in which we find ourselves and resisting the urge to abuse our power, whatever power we might have. These simple acts, say this man in the wilderness, make us ready for the one who is to come. Now, Advent is not a time of joy. Uh, that's Christmas. Advent is more like Lent. It's not so much a time of joy and good feelings, but it's a time of reflection, repentance, and anticipation. May the words of Luke remind us that prayer, church attendance, and other acts of personal piety, as good and necessary as those might be, will not prepare us sufficiently for the arrival of the Messiah. Won't do it. Not sufficient. We must remember our neighbors. We must act in the interest of our neighbors 
not just our fellow church members, our neighbors, our city, and the world. We must act and live in the world. We must practice charity. We don't live in isolated an isolated pocket. We are members of the world so loved by God. We must act accordingly. Only then might we hope to avoid the axe and the fire. Peace be to you. Love you all. Amen. I'll see you next week. Hope you have a great third week of Advent. Thank you.